0: Good afternoon. My name is Neve Kinsler, and you are listening to the College Views News Review Podcast. Joining me this evening is our Deputy News Editors, Kevin John-Martin and Jamie McCarran. In this episode, we are going to discuss the release of a new database of Irish COVID-19 terminology, the struggling financial issues that some staff face working in higher education and publicans in Ireland wanting to reopen for good from Christmas this year. But up first, I have with me here Devin Sean martin who's going to discuss the first story of our day and a problem that is always prominent in society. Devin, if you want to explain to the readers the essence of what the story is about.
1: I would love to, and uh, thank you for having me back. So um, yeah, this week wrote this story about how the the Higher Education Policy Institute, which is in an institute in the, the UK, conducted a study that found that graduates from Russell Group Colleges, which is a group of, of elite colleges in the UK, were more likely to experience a gender pay gap than their non-elite college counterparts. So the, the study found that, that women who graduated from these Russell Group institutions earned about 17% less than their male counterparts after the first few years of graduating college. Uh, and that disparity was only about 5% for other universities. So based on that, the report gave several recommendations to all colleges in the UK as to, to how to mitigate that disparity, but especially the, the Russell Group institutions, because, again, you know, the disparity was so high in those colleges
0: it is such a big issue and when I was reading it it was like it was really stark and I was surprised because you don't think about that coming out of universities and Queen's University itself it's such a well-known university not just in Ireland but even in other countries students from England will come over to study in Queen's and Belfast because it's the same curriculum for them in the Russell group I know the issue was in the Russell group was there any other big well-known universities like that of Queen's
1: yeah I mean the Russell Group has some of the most well-known recognizable colleges in the world, uh, Oxford, University of Cambridge, London School of Economics, Queen's Mary University in London, you know, really some of some of like I said the most recognized prestigious uh, universities uh, in the world, which again makes it at that much more surprising that, you know, here here are these places that are supposed to to give their graduates, you know, the most elite education available to them, the the women who graduate from these universities are getting paid, you know, far, far less than the men, you know, compared to to other, you know, non-elite colleges, which is, again, like you said, you know, so surprising.
0: Yeah, it is. You just really wouldn't kind of expect that. It's not something that you think about college-wise. You know it in the workplace, but you don't think about it. When you think about where they're actually getting the degree from. In the article, you stated that the study talked up several possible reasons for the income disparity based on the study. Are you trying to then say that these reasons, such as men starting search earlier than women for their jobs, is just a presumption made by the Higher Education Policy Institute, or were claims like these backed up?
1: Yep. So, these were the actual findings of the report. So, these were the, the causes of the issue that the study found based on the, the data it collected. So, again, you know, it found things like, like you said, in general, it found that men start their search for jobs like earlier on in college. They're more likely to engage in like unpaid internships during college, which sort of gives them a head start, you know. And these were all things, again, that, that the report found as sort of reasons. And that's why, as far as the recommendations that, that the report, you know, gave out, A lot of it had to do with sort of encouraging universities, and again, especially Russell Group universities, to engage more with their women and give them more opportunities to, again, you know, start their career search early, you know, get them internships while they're in college, right? So all these things that recommended that, you know, these colleges do to sort of, sort of mitigate the distance between, you know, where men are when they graduate and then where women are when they graduate, right?
0: What years was the data for the study collected between? I, I have to ask you this. I, I just feel like I do because I think it's baffling that it's still a problem in society today, especially for new graduates just coming out of a three to five years degree where both women and men are both studying the same thing. Like I know myself, I'm in my final year. I can come out of this and it could be the same thing. Same thing could happen to me as happened to all these women before. Mm-hmm.
1: So the... The report took from several different data sets across the, the country, the United Kingdom, the earliest of which was from 2016, and then the most recent was from 2019, but most of the, the data that it found was from either 2018 and 2019. So it is very, very recent, very current, by no means uh, something that anyone could reasonably say is an issue of the past. This is as current as it gets.
0: Not very, very current and very just stark. such a problem in society today. It's just not highlighted as absolutely. much, I don't think. Thank you so much for that. But if you want to go ahead and explain to our listeners what this, our next story written by Casey Lee McCrudden is about. Sure.
1: This one's a lot more straightforward. So Casey did a great job with this. Uh, it was a story about the, I think it's the Goish Research Group at DCU. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Could be absolutely butchering. And if I am, I'm sorry to our listeners, but they actually just published a data set for covid terminology translated from from english to irish with the goal of making you know discourse about you know the pandemic more inclusive to irish speakers right so this sort of idea here was that this can be used by you know translators educators journalists politicians public speakers you know anyone who needs to communicate about the pandemic with with irish speakers this is will sort of make that easier. And then, you know, it, it's important to note, too, that a lot of these terms are, I suppose, the the main, you know, the, the main terms around the pandemic, you know, mask, social distancing, these are all been covered. Th- this is, is more of a, a thorough sort of nuanced approach. Some of the terms are things like, you know, cocooning, elbow bump, you know, doom scrolling, to name a few. So it's, it's a bit more sort of nuanced niche terms that, again, will just help anyone try and communicate about the pandemic, just more sort of
0: vivacious. That is a great way to put it. I know myself reading the article it was really interesting. I remember when I was in school I really tried to engage with the language but I really really juggled Mm -hmm. and before reading this article I never thought about how the language wasn't equipped just yet Mm -hmm. for the terminology around COVID-19. It's honestly something I never thought about before reading this article this week and I'm sure listeners who have read the article as well probably agree it's not something that you think would have been a problem you think english language you have all the terminology there you don't think it's going to be a problem in irish you already think the words are just going to be there but it's not because it's such a new thing today the most obvious question is in my opinion do we know why it took them so long to come up with this new terminology we've been living with covid for so long now
1: mm-hmm. yeah well it, it's a good question you know and it's one you know again i can't really answer the study was launched in may right? So if you think about this was something that was that was taken on, you know, about a month or two after the pandemic started. So it took about six months, you know, to complete, right? So, you know, it's important to note, this is, this is not an idea someone just had. And again, you know, it, it's to understand this, you know, you have to realize that, again, the major terms have already long been covered, you know, mask, isolation, social distancing, you know, these were translated, you know, long ago at the beginning of the pandemic, which would, you know, I think most people would consider those the essential terms. And now, you know, after, again, you know, over six months of, of dealing with this, you know, the, the school has released, released a, a more nuanced, you know, sort of sort of cultured, you know, uh, translations here with more, you know, terms that aren't necessarily, you know, hyper specific to the pandemic itself, like something like doom scrolling, which is the idea of like endlessly scrolling through your phone, looking at bad news constantly, you know, that's something that existed before the pandemic, but then it's just, you know, it's a term that people are using now more because there's more bad news and there's more time to to scroll on your phone, right? So it's just more of these sort of efforts to make the the discourse between English and Irish speaking people around the issue more
2: thorough and and colloquial, I guess, right? Yeah. Uh, Just to butt in there, like as an Irish speaker myself, like I definitely welcome this kind of, yeah, new terminology and it's it's going to be incredibly useful. I was just thinking about how for sure going to be like a tidal wave of leaving search students writing their like Irish what, paper one essays about, you know, Catherine and a jig. And this kind of thing is like definitely going to help them out. I just think it's been kind of unfortunate how long it took, you know, because November could have been done a little bit earlier. But I mean, overall, just for the sort of benefit that they will get out of this in, you know, in just schoolwork and, you know, in their daily lives, like in general. It's definitely a good thing. Better um, late than never, like, you know. I think that's a great point. You know, absolutely. When Again, when you talk about the idea of, you know, academic writing,
1: you know, you brought up the, the leaving cert, but obviously, you know, they're, you know, the, the ubiquitous pervasive issue going on in our world in their language. And if that language is Irish, you know, they need, again, these sort of colloquial terms to sort of write about it concisely and at the same level and standard that one could write, you know, in English. So I, I think that's a great point.
0: Yeah, they need to be given the same opportunity to just converse in their normal language, even like it's it's madness. I think that just took this long and it's only starting now. Mm -hmm. Do we know why DC was a part of the study? Is our college known for its Irish?
1: Well, not necessarily, but the group that conducted the study was Again, I think it's the Goish Research Group, which is sort of responsible for Irish language-based research. So it, it does make sense that, that they took this on. But this entire the entire database was launched in coalition with. DCU's COVID research and innovation hub, which has, you know, since the pandemic began, been doing a lot of tremendous work for all sorts of areas hit by COVID. And then, you know, this this Irish language aspect is just, you know, one part of it. This database is part of a, a sort of more, a more pervasive uh, DCU effort to, you know, mitigate the effects of the pandemic.
0: As the glossary is continuously getting added to, listeners can keep an eye out on their Twitter, at G-A-O-I-S underscore IE, for the latest updates on more terms. Our second deputy news editor Jamie McCarran, is here to discuss one of his own stories about financial issues staff face working in higher education. We're so glad to have you here, Jamie, if you would like to explain what this story is about?
2: Yeah, brilliant. Thanks very much. So the investigative journalism organisation, Noteworthy, they had a six-month-long research investigation into the kind of problems that some staff in universities and colleges in this country face. So they, they interviewed dozens of part-time lecturers and lecturers on like temporary contracts and, you know, sent freedom of information requests to, I think, every college in the country. And what they found was that significant amount of them are struggling with job security. You know, a lot of them don't know Will they have a job in the next academic year? Some of them are working on like a weekly basis. It's just a very difficult situation for them. A lot of these people aren't being paid very well. And it's quite surprising to see like in a sector that's so relied upon that this kind of like disparity of income is a real problem.
0: And are these financial issues that were highlighted in the study caused by COVID or has it always been a problem for the academic staff?
2: Well, it's pretty safe to assume that COVID is only going to make the situation much worse, but it's actually been a problem for quite a while. Dr. Teresa O'Keefe, who I mentioned in the article, she's been researching this kind of thing for several years. And in one of her studies that she released in 2013, she mentioned that some of the people she spoke to had been struggling with these financial issues in their positions for up to 15 years. So it's been around a lot longer than you would think. And then, of course, 2008 recession, and the austerity that came after it, you know, there were spending cuts, the government implemented a limit on how many full-time staff could be employed. So then universities kind of didn't have much choice. A lot of them had to employ people on these precarious type of contracts just so they could properly educate their students without having to take on, on more expensive full-time staff. So all of these things have made it worse. Yeah, we can see that the, the amount of staff in these you know, difficult positions, precarious as the report puts it, that's clearly only going to rise from this point onwards.
0: It is quite stark. You noted in the article that Noteworthy found that 11,200 staff in the HDI's work on these temporary or casual contracts. I know it's a significant number, but on a broader scale, say percentage-wise, out of the total number of staff in higher education institutes, which would include full-time staff like lecturers, what does this number represent?
2: So it wasn't mentioned in the noteworthy report, but as of December last year, there were, I think, 16,800 people working in our colleges and institutions of education across the country. So around two thirds of those people would be in this so-called casual category of employment, which sounds shocking and it actually is, but it's not as bad as it would imply because a lot of the details that Noteworthy have brought up, you know, the the job insecurity, the low pay, the difficult working environment, that doesn't actually affect all of these people because I mentioned in the article that Trinity's non-permanent staff, some of them are making 60,000 euro a year and some of them are making 2,000 euro a year so within these different subsections there are other subsections of course it's not two-thirds of our university staff that are struggling financially and some of them are facing you know having to sign on to unemployment it's a more specific subset but of course that can be hard to measure you know we don't have surveys of how much are you struggling financially you know it's just kind of like within this category it is an issue for sure.
0: I doubt in the article that some of the part-time staff were only making like six thousand a year and that's nothing anyone can really survive on if they're academic staff they're there for a reason they've already finished their studies or they're nearly there you'd expect them to have a full salary and be able to live you know be able to afford a mortgage and I would one of the people in the article were saying she's 40 or 45 and she'll never be able to afford a mortgage I think that's that's crazy that's so crazy.
2: Yeah like a lot of industries is kind of like you're taught that Starting out, you're going to struggle to begin with. You might have to work for free for several years. It's going to be hard to move in to the sector and work your way up the ladder. And that's true in a lot of things. But in this, people are being told that, but there's just no opportunities for them to progress. And that's definitely a real issue. Like another person referenced in the article, she was saying that during last Christmas, her son was working part-time in done stores. And he was actually making more money than her as a casual lecturer. So it's definitely a very you know serious issue that's that's there
0: yeah um another serious issue that i think was brought up was about women and it kind of comes full circle from devon's article about the higher education policy institute to the point raised in your article where you state the noteworthy investigation also found that although male lecturers make up to close 60 percent of full-time academic jobs the majority of low-paying casual roles are filled by women In universities, women make up 71% of these non-permanent positions, as well as 63% of non-permanent jobs in institutes of technology. This essentially means that women are being paid less than men because they are being given the lesser roles compared to their male colleagues. Do you think this resonates with Devin's article and what he was speaking about?
2: Yeah, definitely. There is um, a lot of similarities there. One of my, I think, Teresa O'Keefe, the doctor, she said women are forced to do the housework of academia. Definitely true. In, in Devon's article, I remember a quote that said that this report shows how pervasive the wage gap is. And you could definitely say the exact same thing about this noteworthy report, because generally, like we think of universities as being places of like equality and, you know, female empowerment. But surprisingly, there's like a disparity, mostly based on gender is there as well. It's, it's everywhere. It's even worse in universities than in institutes of technology. So there's definitely a parallel there with Devon's article. And as well as I think one of the reasons that it's so bad could be because that these higher education institutes, they want to look progressive and they want to say, oh, half of our staff are women or even in some cases, the majority of their staff. But that's only because the women are in very difficult, low paying roles that don't have the same prestige, don't have the same career progression. And when you look below the surface, it is actually a case of still a definite wage gap there.
0: Yeah, that is a great way of putting it. Like they are trying to show fifty percent of our staff, sixty percent of their staff are women, but they're getting paid less and they just don't have as higher roles, as renowned position as their male colleagues who might have the exact same credentials as them, the same, say, PhD or bachelor's degree anything of the sort thank you so much for that and if you'd like to tell us what our next story is about and explain to our listeners what this all i want for christmas campaign was
2: about yeah so the hashtag all i want for christmas campaign a bit badly named because if you look that up all you're going to get is uh, mariah carey but it consists of online videos of people that did work in the hospitality sector and they're just urging the reopening of pubs and restaurants so usually what you see is the likes of all I want for Christmas is my job to come back or I want to be able to provide for my family or that type of thing. So it's just an appeal for the reopening of parts of the economy so that, you know, people can get back to their normal lives, back to their jobs.
0: It's stated in the article and it's kind of common knowledge at this stage that Ireland had the longest lockdown for pubs in Europe. I think the Irish Times published that. I did read it myself. How are other countries keeping their pubs open doing now during COVID without seeing a, such a surge in cases? And if it's safe to do so for them, why hasn't Ireland been doing this or why aren't we planning on?
2: Yeah, so Irish pubs, the hospitality sector, pubs and restaurants that are usually counted together, they've been closed for 120 days in the first wave, which is much, much longer than the next highest country in Europe which is Finland at around 74, I think. That's probably because the rest of Europe has higher ICU capacities. So we couldn't really take that risk of keeping pubs open. So that's probably a major factor in it. And I'm not sure about the situation country by country. But if you just look at the the UK, they only closed pubs and restaurants for 54 days. But there's kind of a lack of consensus on whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, how it affected cases. If you look at like public health officials, they're saying that, when they do contact tracing a lot of people were in pubs and restaurants 2 to 3 days before they noticed symptoms it's likely that that's where they caught covid but then it, the hospitality groups they cite other data that appears to show the exact opposite that pubs and restaurants aren't affecting at all so it's kind of difficult with just the sheer amount of statistics to figure out if ireland did make the right call when you compare it to the rest of europe so it's kind of it kind of remains to be seen if it's safe and if we were overly cautious or or not.
0: Yeah, I know so many people are obviously making the argument that it is safe because publicans are making the environment of um, business safe for their customers. Like they have hand sanitizer, they have social distancing, they, they're signing people in when you come into a restaurant or a pub, they're getting your details for contact tracing. It was noted by the writer and Cullen in the article that one of the pubs who she interviewed they got the Falter Ireland COVID-19 safety charter. Have all pubs in Ireland received this? Because when I read it, I felt like maybe they should have if they're taking the right precautions.
2: Yeah, so the, the safety charter was developed by the National Tourism Development Authority. And it's basically, it's just an initiative to give the public like peace of mind when they go back to certain businesses mostly in like the tourism sector, pubs, restaurants, hotels, cultural centers, that type of thing. By displaying like their symbol, it shows that employees have had like the proper health and safety training and that they're subject, to like the place is subject to like random unannounced inspections. And there's like a list online where you can see where your local businesses like are doing in terms of this. It seems like a really good scheme to just ensure like consumer confidence. But unfortunately, it seems like the, the compliance is quite low at the minute they don't have figures out on like the national amount of participation because it is a voluntary scheme. But looking at my own county, County Monham, there are only seven pubs on this charter. And that's strange. In my entire county, seven pubs. There are 15 pubs in my hometown. So the entire county, only seven, that's actually incredibly low. But then again, of course, a pub doesn't have to be on this scheme or initiative to be actually safe and Even if they are in the scheme, that doesn't necessarily ensure that they are 100% safe. I'd say that what's likely is as it gets closer to when pubs can actually reopen, that's when you'll see a major like pickup in these numbers. Because as of right now, it's not really that necessary to have this charter on your business if you're not even open. So I would say that we're going to see a huge increase in those numbers like in the future.
0: I think it's just kind of a peace of mind for people and for customers. That's yeah. the way I kind of see it. To end this, I just want to pose a question for both you, Jamie, and Devin. Do you think pub should reopen longer than proposed, I think it's a two-week period over Christmas?
2: Well, like I said earlier, it's kind of hard to tell from the statistics if it's necessarily a good or bad idea when you look at other countries. But what I would say is, if the government thinks it's safe to open for two weeks, why not longer? Like, where exactly are they drawing the line where it suddenly becomes, you know, dangerous? Like a lot of pubs are really struggling to cover their expenses. They've had to hire new staff. They've had to bring in new PPE equipment. They've had to put up plexiglass screens, that type of thing. A lot of them have had to completely replace their supply of beer because, you know, it's perishable. And then you add on top of that reduced capacity and reduced hours where they can actually make money. And it just means that it's going to be fairly difficult for them to break even, even if they do have two weeks. So it's kind of an empty gesture to publicans. I really sympathize with them. I would say, and again, I'm obviously no expert, but I would say reopen longer than two weeks if it seems like it's going to be safe. Of course, we can't really know. It's, it's a big risk. It depends how things go. But like, I think reopen longer than that if it seems to be safe or just keep the pubs closed until we can open them on a permanent basis. But I don't think half measures are really going to do the job in this situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point about, you know, if, if you think it's safe to open them for two weeks, then, you know, why, why can't you open it for a month? You know, I, I don't really understand that. Obviously, we'd all love to be able to have, you know, the pubs open for Christmas. But the, the entire reason why we have a government is to be better than the people, you know, because sometimes, you know, our, our own will isn't in our best interest. So, you know, I, I couldn't have said it better myself, honestly. You know, Jamie, I, I don't really understand how you know, you can, you can say that it's safe to, to open for a little bit, but, you know, no longer. I just don't think that's in any way feasible.
0: Thank you so much, guys. Thanks so much for your two articles, Jamie, as well. And thank you to Devin for being a part of today's podcast. I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode of the College View's News Review podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the College View for regular updates. And I hope you tune in next time. That's all from me, Neve Kinsler. Thank you.